0: what does real christianity look like and what do real christians believe how are real christians supposed to love like and live like it's these questions that john the apostle sought to answer in the letter of first john it's what we look at today first john chapter two if you have your bibles go ahead and turn there with me first john chapter two verses 18 to 27 And we've been spending a number of weeks before and a number of weeks ahead of us. We're just going to be walking through the letter of 1 John, as we believe all of God's word is helpful for us, certainly is authoritative and inerrant. And so we seek to preach it all to to, uh, ourselves here. The Apostle John wrote the letter of 1 John to churches, probably in Ephesus. And some Christians in the community claim to have fellowship with God, but they were denying his very truth and his very character. And some of the real Christians, you can imagine, are getting confused. This is a young church. you know, They sprouted roots and now they're growing. So you can imagine that if this group of the church uh, started denying some of the core fundamentals of the faith, and you guys are young and possibly immature, then you might look and wonder what exactly is real. And so First John here helps us. And um, what he does is he returns to certain themes over and over and over again. They're like inspection stations. So he brings us to these inspection stations wanting us to examine ourselves and actually use some sort of test to examine other people who profess to be Christians. And so first we have a doctrinal test that asks the question, what do you think of Jesus? And there he says, real Christians affirm and defend that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's the doctrinal test. And then he has another test, a moral test. Real Christians obey Christ's commands. And then a social test, which is kind of a subset of the moral. Uh, real Christians love those whom Jesus died for. So if you guys remember, John just sort of revisits these uh, inspection stations. He helpfully does it. He brings us along and he is meant for us to examine ourselves. Uh, I'll go ahead and read 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son oscar can i get a can i get a drink of water thanks (coughs) 23 no one who denies the son has the father whoever confesses the son has the father also let what you heard from the beginning abide in you if what you heard from the beginning abides in you then you too will abide in the son and in the father and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we see the big idea from this passage that real Christians persevere in fellowship with the real Jesus, his truth. And his church. If you're taking notes, that'll be the, the main idea. Real Christians persevere in fellowship with the real Jesus. His truth and his church. Okay, so let's look first at how real Christians persevere. This is in verses 18 and 19. And here he he's, he keep in mind he is encouraging the Christians to persevere, which is why that's the point. Real Christians persevere in fellowship. And he brings up a negative example, because that's how we all learn sometimes. So here's a negative example that he uses to encourage the Christians to persevere. Look at 18. I'll read it again. Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. You can hear the urgency in his voice, right? Children, it is the last hour. So this is a a trumpet call to greater watchfulness and discernment as they wait for the return of Jesus Christ. It is the last hour. Um, And it's interesting language, right? This last hour language. The Bible says that in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming... The Bible calls that the last days, the last days. And if you guys remember from last week, we can imagine that, uh, you know, the world through sin is covered with a dark, um, shroud of, uh, of stuff. <laughs> and what the dark shroud does because of sin is it, it clouds people's judgment. They aren't able to see because of their sin and rebellion against God. And so this dark shroud then therefore covers the whole entire world. But in the sending of Jesus Christ, who is the light, you can imagine what it would be like if we all lived in darkness. And then all of a sudden you have a little poke through the shroud of light. And that's Christ who comes into the cosmos, the world. And we know that in just amount of, in the right amount of time, eventually, according to God's timing, that total shroud is going to be ripped apart. And then everyone in the world will see Christ for who he is. Either obey him and submit to him. Or they see Christ for who he is and they continue in uh, rebellion. And then eventually God judges them. So this is the last hour. These are the last days. They're waiting for that shroud to be torn apart and for Christ to return. So he inaugurated his coming like a king does in the first coming. In his life, his death, his resurrection. And then he will consummate his coming. He will consummate his kingdom in the second coming. And so there's a special urgency here for John. He says this is the last hour because he's witnessing the very things that mark the end times. So Jesus said in Matthew twenty four twenty four, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect. If that were even possible, Jude uh, speaks about these people, these false teachers as scoffers, right? They sort of mock the real truth. And then first Timothy four, it speaks about these false teachers as those who depart from the faith to follow after deceitful spirits and liars. John here, he just simply calls them antichrists. They're antichrists. Those, those who are against Christ and, and the antichrists there that were present at the time, they were forerunners of the antichrist and they had the same spirit of the antichrist, right? So they're like of the same lineage. Uh, So go ahead and flip over to chapter 4, verse 3. John says, 1 John 4, 3, he says the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. It's already in the world. So so as they, you know, keep in mind, this this here was a church community. And so the Christians very much could have been remembering what it would have been like to see the backs of their friends walk away from the church. Because they're departing, right? They're abandoning Christ. They're abandoning the fellowship. And so it just, it's pretty obvious that this is pretty sinister. I mean, the spirit of the Antichrist is working amongst the so called Christians of the time. And they are of the same spirit of the Antichrist. Fundamentally, these folks are opposers of God. They are opposers of God. So, Daniel, in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, he prophesies of the Antichrist and says, This guy speaks words against the most high so his very words stand in opposition to the most high Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 describes this man as a, the son of destruction who opposes God and then it goes further and it says not only does he oppose God he proclaims himself to be God so here these folks these antichrists are opposers of God what did they do What were the Antichrist doing? Well, they were abandoning the church of Jesus Christ. They were leaving the church. And the foundational reason for their departure was because of doctrine. The fundamental reason for why they were leaving the church was doctrine. So they believed in a Jesus. They believed in a Jesus uh, and they believed in a Christ. So they would have used all of these words and said, we believe in all of these categories just like you do. But they don't they wouldn't at all agree with what Orthodox Christianity what the Bible actually said Christianity was who this Jesus was who this Christ was and who this very triune God was. We know from history that a certain strain of this uh, this uh, Gnostic heresy it was called Gnosticism Gnostic that's G-N-O-S-T-I-C if you're interested Um, it gained ground in what is modern day Turkey. And they claimed that Christ was a bodiless spirit. So they thought the spiritual is good, but the physical, the stuff of the world, the flesh is bad. Okay, spiritual good, flesh bad. And so when it came to the doctrine of the Incarnation, they said, oh yeah, I don't think that's really going to work. Given my already conceived notions of what is good and what is bad. What is God and what is not. So they thought Christ was this bodiless divine spirit that came to rest upon the man, Jesus. So the spirit, bodyless spirit just came to rest on this body, on this man, Jesus, on his body. And that happened at his baptism. And then, of course, since God can't be crucified, the spirit of God, Christ, Christ went up from Jesus before his crucifixion. So keep in mind, if you guys were to ask them, do you believe in a Jesus? They're going to say, of course we believe in a Jesus. Do you believe in a Christ? They say, yes, of course we believe in a Christ. The problem is, is that they are redefining terms. Again, they use all these terms, Christ, Jesus, and God, but they don't mean what the Christians meant. And so really, they are rejecting the biblical Jesus, who was fully divine and fully man. They reject the incarnation. And then, of course, eventually, it leads to the fact that they reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you be saved if God does not save you? Because in, Bi- in the Bible, it says God is the one who saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So in what sense is Jesus actually saving us? And then if it is required that a man undo what the first man Adam did, well, that means the savior has to be a man. And so they reject that Jesus actually saves and logically. That's what we lead, That's what we are led to. So they reinvent this Jesus to suit the culture and the philosophies of this world. They think, okay, you know, these folks might not accept Jesus. So we're going to repackage him in order that supposed Christianity uh, might do well for them. So imagine if I'm the false teacher. Imagine if this side is the false teachers. We all are going to say, you guys are getting it wrong. And then when you guys push back against us, then we say, well, fine, then we're just going to go ahead and start our own church. And that's what seems to be happening here in this situation there. Eventually they leave the church. Look at there in verse 19. And keep in mind, later on in the passage, it says that they are deceiving other people. They're leading them astray. It says they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. You hear a lot of this belonging language. Uh, this is something that John brings up a number of times, not only in his gospel, but then here in this letter. This is fellowship with God here. Fellowship with his people, God's real people, is fellowship with God because they have and they believe the true God. So John is dead set on clarifying that these folks are false converts. He says that these folks are not genuine Christian disciples. Just because they claim Christ and just because at one point in time they might have been part of the church... He says, their departing showed that they were not really disciples of the real Jesus Christ. The verse says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. So then the question is, what would show that they are genuine disciples of God? And John anticipates this question. So look there at the passage. He says, for, this is a reason or an explanation, um, more so a reason. For if they had belonged to us, so this is an if-then Clause it is very logical. If such and such, then such and such. If they had belonged to us, then they would have remained with us. And then the grand conclusion is, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So here, cutting ties from a true church, a true church meaning one who truly preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it proves that they were never true believers. Keep in mind, um, fellowship with a true church means fellowship with God as well, as I mentioned earlier. So it's not just about church association. That's not what he's getting at here. It's not just about, hey, I go to First Baptist Church or whatever. Here we're talking about being partnered with God in will, desire, purpose. So turn back over to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. All right, this is an introduction here, and John is wanting the Christians to know... Look there, we proclaim these things to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? Keep in mind, they're watching their friends leave the church. And so John is saying, look, our fellowship, even as you may be tempted to go and join them, he says, our fellowship is with God and is, and is with his Son, Jesus Christ. For Christians today, you know, it's really important for us to have in our in our minds a category for those who say, I follow Jesus or I believe the Bible, but who, according to Jesus, are not real Christians. So do you guys have that category in your mind? It's a category that says, I follow Jesus. I believe the Bible, but they may not really be Christians, genuine believers. I mean, that's what the passage leads us to believe. I mean, John teaches the same thing in John chapter 6. So Jesus was going around there in John chapter 6 in his ministry, and uh, he was doing, working a lot of miracles. He's feeding the 5,000, healing people. And, he, of course, a large group of people were, going, were flocking to him just to watch. You know, he's like a circus act. They're, they're just w- watching what he does. They're interested in, in, in why he does what he does, and even, to some degree, the things that he teaches. But then he starts talking about how he is the bread of life, and how you all must eat of the bread of life and drink of him. And in, do, in so doing, you then are my disciples and you then are true believers. But you know what happens is that these folks take offense at what Jesus is saying. So keep in mind, they're eating the very bread that Jesus multiplied and the fish. They're watching him. They're following him. They are supposed disciples. Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then this is what John records. He says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. And then that story is sort of butt up against the story with the apostles, where the apostles say, why would we leave you? You have the words of eternal life. All those folks who no longer stopped following jesus they said yeah i don't think i'm going to follow the words of life and that's obviously in contrast to the disciples who say you have the words of eternal life you know i think one thing that has led to uh this confusion where we don't have this category in our minds is this doctrine of something called once saved always saved I'm talking about a popular notion of the doctrine, once saved, always saved. So I believe in once saved, always saved, but not the popular version of once saved, always saved. So there are some Christians who say that when someone prays a prayer to invite Jesus into their heart, that person is saved. Once saved, always saved, they say. And it doesn't matter what happens after. It doesn't matter what they do or what they believe. So someone could say, I have prayed the prayer. I Therefore, am a Christian. Ten years later, they say, you know what? I actually don't believe God is God. I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe the Trinity. I don't believe I have to repent of my sins. And every the Christians would say, no, you are a believer. So this is more like salvation without repentance. Salvation without repentance. That's kind of what they're holding out. You can live your life in unrepentant sin, and you still ought to have confidence in your faith. But I think 1 John actually says, no, that category does not exist. Now, clearly, there is a category that exists where someone, even like myself, who, I, you know, I grew up in the church. I think I was converted sometime between 6 and 14. Um, and then towards the end of high school, I backslid severely. Doubted the sovereignty of God. I doubted the goodness and the love of God. And therefore, I was wrestling with the nature of God and how does he interact with us. So is providence and evil. Why do bad things happen to people? Why do bad things happen to me? And then that led me to run away from God and to basically indulge in drunkenness and other things escaping those things now i was in sin but the very fact that i am here means that i showed myself i proved myself to be a christian i was evidencing my salvation through my works so i'm able to look back at that in time even when i was twisted in my mind and my thinking and my living and say wow you know the lord really preserved me there and i proved to be saved by the very fact that That I was following Jesus even now. Um, Now, sometimes it can get really tricky as we evaluate ourselves. You know, what did we believe there? Or, you know, were we really a believer then? But if we claim to be believers now and we're walking with Christ now, we should have assurance of our faith. The Bible actually never says, hey, you should look back to the time when you were five years old, when you prayed a prayer or when you raised your hand. The Bible never says, look, you look back to the time when you did something and say, that's when you were converted. The Bible says, you look at your life now and you will know if you are converted. Um, So that's the popular notion of once saved, always saved. But don't hear me saying that you can lose your salvation. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation as if salvation is a revolving door. So those folks who say that you can lose your salvation... You know, they come to texts like this, and I just don't know how you can reconcile these passages. They say you can lose your salvation, but in John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, Jesus there, he's offering confidence to the little sheep, right? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, he says. So you can't lose your salvation, In the passage that we look at today, John doesn't say they lost what they once had, right? He doesn't say, look, you guys are losing what you you once had. Now come back and you gain it back. No, he's not saying that. He says that they they never really had it to begin with. So keep in mind, I believe in once saved, always saved. And I champion that because Christ's blood is that powerful. If he's going to die on the cross for sins, he's really going to claim us back. He is really going to redeem those out of the pit. He is genuinely going to remove the, the wrath and the condemnation that I deserved by taking the sins and the wrath that I deserved on the cross. Right? He actually does something. He accomplishes our salvation. So, of course, once saved, always saved. Is Jesus' work powerful and then all of a sudden not so powerful to actually redeem those who, who uh, repent and believe? I say, obviously. God's grace is that powerful and the blood of Christ is that powerful. So what I'm speaking of and speaking against is the popular notion that you can be saved or have salvation and not repent. That's just not an option that we see in scripture. Um, John 15:8 says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is really clear. You prove to be my disciples as you're bearing fruit. And there, if you just want to have a a lengthy devotion and encouragement, uh, you know, just go ahead and read John chapter 15, all of it. And you'll see there, he talks about what it looks like to abide in him and what happens to those who don't abide. Listen to these other verses. John 8 verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So that's like a morality test, right? Are you obeying Jesus' command? And then John fifteen one and 2, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul here says, now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold it fast, unless you believed in vain. Colossians one twenty one to 23. And you who once were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled. That's past tense, okay? He has done this because his blood is that powerful. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Provided that you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And then Jesus again, Mark 13, 13, but he who endures to the end will be saved. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now, keep in mind, I'm not thinking about like, you know, you guys, I have, we, I have a friend who, who regularly doubts the existence of God and the reality of Christ. And he's about 40% of the time doubting. So he, I'm not encouraging, Hey, you should really wonder if you're a believer. Uh, Because you doubt doubt is actually normal um, because we live in a fallen world. But what I do encourage him, I say, dude, brother, you know, you look at the things uh, that are true in scripture and you remain steadfast in those things. Yes. Will you doubt? Sure. But you prove to be yourself. You prove to be a disciple. You prove your salvation by continuing to believe even in the midst of doubt. The realities of Jesus Christ and by continuing to pursue godliness in the midst of doubt. So these things are exactly what the heretics did not do. They didn't persevere. They didn't endure to the end. They did not hold fast the gospel. They did not abide in his word. And so they proved, John says, not to be Jesus' disciples. So whether or not, if we think about their, their, their locale in the situation there, whether their deception took a more sly or combative fashion, we just don't know. They don't really know exactly what happened. Either way, this is not a friendly church plan. It's not a friendly church plant. And so John, in an effort to encourage the Christians to continue in fellowship with the church, he warns and reminds them they were never really part of us. But you persevere in fellowship. This brings us to our second point. is really the basis of the fellowship. Second, Christians are to persevere in Jesus and his truth. Christians are supposed to persevere in Jesus and his truth. So he he encourages them by helping them understand what differentiates them to the Antichrist versus the Christians. And that's how he, that's one way in which he encourages them. The first thing he says there, look in verse 20. And he sets it up. He says, look, the Antichrist, they have left. They have the spirit that opposes God. But you look in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge For you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. So what separates them? The first thing that separates them is they have the anointing. They have the anointing. So if the spirit of the Antichrist is working on them. Over here he says to the Christians, the spirit of Christ is working in you. They have the anointing. And they have all knowledge. They don't need to go anywhere else to seek this salvation. Because they already have it. Jesus Christ already lived in history. Who died in space and time to redeem sinners from, the, from death and destruction. And those who repent and believe, they receive the anointing. So it happens so plainly before everyone. And then the apostles are inviting everyone to believe. And when they believe, when they repent and believe, Jesus says the spirit is for everybody who does that. So what is plain and evident, the Gnostics say, no, the the heretics, they say, no, you know, we have special knowledge, additional truth. So they had an in, an inside track to salvation. And it really just laid with them. And so it was vital for John to remind them of what they already saw in history, of what they had already known, of what all the apostles had already delivered to them. And this anointing that he says differentiates one another uh, is the very gift of the Holy Spirit given to them by Jesus Christ. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you guys remember back to John 16, Jesus says that he's going to do something new. It says it is, He says, it is to your advantage. I mean, can you believe that? Jesus says, it is to your advantage that me, the Son of God, go away. <clears throat> so naturally, we might be left thinking, how is it to our advantage that the son of God go away? Well, he says in John sixteen six, it is your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That is the Holy spirit. John 16 verses 13 to 15 reads when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mind. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, so the possession of the spirit there meant for the disciples <clears throat> that they were going to be led into all truth. And so it is with all believers, all of God's people. We actually know God. And um, in the Old Testament, it was different. You had Israel, but not all in Israel actually believed. There were some who didn't. That's why Scripture talks about God preserving a remnant in Israel. But in the Old Testament, God says, I will do something different. And here we can think of the prophecies of the new covenant. As opposed to the old covenant that is in Moses. So the new covenant is what Jeremiah 31 says. 31 verse 33 This is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And get this in 34. No longer will a man teach his brother or teach his neighbor like Israel would be evangelizing their fellow Israelites because that's what happened. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man, his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me, he says. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then Ezekiel chapter 36 speaks of the same event. God says, I will give you a new spirit. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all of my rules." So in Jesus' coming, as he sends his spirit to lead his disciples into all truth, and then as we today, and even the, apost- the uh, church of the first century, they received the truth, um, those promises are all fulfilled in Christ. Jesus comes, he delivers his spirit at Pentecost, a once-in-a-lifetime, not only a lifetime, but a once-in-a-redemptive-history timeline. It only happened once, he pours out his spirit, and therefore at that time all of God's people... That is, those who are in the church would know God. Very different to what was going on in the Old Testament there. So for John's readers, they had no need to go to some other teacher to learn, to get an inside track on salvation. And to do so, to say, yes, all those folks over there who have just left the church, they have the true salvation. This inside track to do that would be to deny everything that Jesus did. And look at how John steers them clear from the false teachers in 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So let me be clear. John is not saying that they had no need for teachers. He's not saying that they had no need for teachers and so they can blow off the church's elders and go against, you know, what Jesus is saying and what the apostles say. Here, John is saying that you do not need to pursue those people who deny Jesus and claim a new teaching because you already know the truth. You already have the truth. You already saw it in history. Jesus said, I give everyone knowledge if they repent and believe. And so they repented and believed and received the spirit of Jesus Christ. What's interesting in that verse there, you see, uh, or in one of the verses that I read from John 16, you see the primary work of the spirit, which is to glorify Jesus. He says, the helper, the spirit, he will glorify me by taking what is mine and giving it to you guys. That is his truth. So the real spirit of Jesus glorifies Jesus himself. So where Christ, the real Christ in his gospel is glorified. There's where, you know, the spirit is working. If the gospel is not glorified on a regular basis, or sorry, if Jesus Christ, the real Jesus and the real gospel is not exalted, then we see a trajectory there. The spirit of Jesus is not at work there. And this is the second thing that John tells them, separates them from the Antichrist, right? They have the real Jesus. So not only do they have the anointing, but the anointing teaches them about the real Jesus. Look in 21 I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. So here the Spirit of Jesus works in people's lives to glorify Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, that's an indicator of where we know the spirit is working. If the real Jesus is being exalted. And did you guys notice there in 21 and 22 that John here is encouraging us to draw doctrinal boundaries? He's actually calling us to draw doctrinal boundaries. So there originally was some. And then the heretics, they come along and they say, we're going to read. We're going to redraw these boundaries, just like Adam and Eve did in their sin and rebellion against them. And John says, no, you guys, all Christians, you stand on the line and you protect it from them redrawing the boundaries. But it's not simply because, you know, we prefer these words over here or we just so happen to come from this culture and uh, we like this, particularly over this. Look what's at stake in 25. This is what is at stake in the redrawing of boundaries. And this is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. He says, look, this is, this is what I stake here. Eternal life. And as it was to be then, so it was and is now. If the church is going to be, remain true to the gospel, <clears throat> it has to remain faithful in drawing boundaries to identify what the true gospel is. So, you know, one way that the church, since its inception, not our church, I'm just talking about the church in general, one way that the church has been trying to preserve the line is by paying attention to who comes into the church. So this is church membership here. Now, now of course, in the first century, did it look like the way that we do it? Probably not. Uh, But nevertheless, they are very much concerned about who comes into the church. Um, So I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm talking about church membership. Uh, And so we practice church membership. We seek to do the same thing. So give our attention to who comes into the church. And so at the very beginning of our membership class, the first class, we talk about what is the gospel. Because we want to be clear, you know, what exactly does this church stand for? And the Church of Jesus Christ at large. What does the church stand for? And then in the membership interviews, so that's when I get a chance to sit down with you and hear about your testimony. And there, in that interview, we talk about what is the gospel. Because again, we're trying to, to the best of our abilities as elders, um, see to it that the wall is maintained. And not a wall of of meanness or hostility, but actually it's a wall that preserves the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine if we let just anybody into the membership of the church? Now, keep in mind, the membership in our church votes on its leaders. The membership determines, uh, according to the Bible, what doctrines we ought to hold in primary categories, secondary categories, tertiary categories. Now, what if we just let in everybody into the church? Let's say we invited the Muslims who uh, worship at uh, their gathering, the mosque down to 57 and the 60. Or we invite the Hindus who are off the 60. And then we say we invite the, the folks at the Shilai temple. And we say, look, all be, you guys can all be members of our church. And then all of a sudden they're saying, oh, you know what? You've got Jesus wrong. He actually isn't God. He is just a prophet. Or they say, look, Jesus is great, but look, there's so many other ways to salvation. And you determine that for yourself, how you are saved. All roads lead to the same God. All of a sudden, we no longer will be a Christian church. So actually drawing the boundaries of doctrine of who this Jesus is protects the gospel. We want those folks to come to the church, like to attend the church. Absolutely. That's like the best place they could be, right? We want them to attend. We want to get to know them. We want to love them as best we can. But when it comes to membership, that's a different thing. Okay, so if you're visiting with us, and maybe you are a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, we're glad you're here. So don't take, it, don't take this to mean that you are not welcome. You are welcome. But we're not going to lay on you the responsibility of determining who Jesus is. Just like I'm sure you might already recognize that you do not give us the responsibility to determine who Muhammad is, or someone like that. Um, so we are, we're, we're glad that you're here. We're, we welcome you. Uh, but again, we're not going to give you the responsibility to determine who Jesus is according to the Bible. Nor are we really going to say we're going to hold you accountable according to what God says you ought to live like. Because you don't even claim to believe some of the things that are in the Bible. So it just would kind of be illogical if we did that. Um, but if you, are a, if you are a Christian, then you should be saying, well, how do I actually join with local bodies of believers because that's what we see happening in the new testament local bodies of believers bodies of believers form together and there's an understanding that the sheep should be in the fold that a brick should be in a building that a person should be in a family of christians and in so doing it supports the truth of jesus christ so some of you guys are are into biology and things like that you know how every cell has a cell wall that's like church membership And the cell wall keeps out things and lets in other things, right? Imagine if the cells on your skin were were just said, you know what, today I'm not going to be, I I won't be as discriminating. And I'm just going to let everything that falls from the sky into me automatically. I mean, soon we'd be like oozing down Hacienda Boulevard like a sponge because we would just be taking on everything. Our skin wouldn't be discriminating. Uh, That's what the cell wall does. Uh, That's what the skin does. So the skin is kind of like membership. The skin of a, a living organism is kind of like membership in a local church. Or a cell wall of a cell is kind of like membership in a local church. So what are the two things that John says separated the Antichrist from the Christians? Number one, the spirit of Christ. And then number two, the right doctrine of Jesus Christ. And it's these things that John told the Christians to persevere in. It's those very things that Jesus said, persevere in the spirit and in truth. And that's the second way in which he encourages the Christians to persevere in Jesus and his truth. Look at 24. It says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Here's another if-then clause. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. So there again, you hear the language of fellowship. You hear the language of partnership, of belonging. But here he uses the word abiding. This can literally be translated to remain or or it can be meant to to mean to have. So what were the Christians to let remain in them in verse 24? What, What were they supposed to let remain? He says there, let what you heard. This is the gospel message. That we have all rebelled against Jesus Christ, God himself, that we in our sin have redrawn certain boundaries. And we've earned for ourselves a condemnation, ultimately, as the Bible says, in eternal hell. That's the bad news. The good news is that God provides a solution where we created the problem. And he says, I want you to have my son to be delivered from that very judgment that you deserve. So there is grace and there is love. And at the same time, God upholds his justice and his holiness and his righteousness because where we deserve the sin and wrath and judgment he pours it out upon his son so that all those who repent and believe and trust in christ for salvation alone they are saved and then he was raised from the third day proving to all that this payment has in fact been made reconciliation can be had that's what they had heard it's interesting isn't it it how truth-driven this is it's incredibly truth driven. Look in 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you again because they have already been taught. They've already heard these things. They've already embraced them. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Here's the command. Just as it has taught you abide in him. This here is a truth driven solution and it's kind of like he says look you heard the word of truth let it abide in you let those things that you've already received the gospel abide in you and then it says then you will abide in the father and in his son it's not like he says hey you know you ought to do your good deed every single day or make sure your deeds your good deeds outweigh your bad he just says let what you have heard what the spirit is working in you abide in you and you therefore will remain in him you have He says. And they remain in the truth as the spirit of Christ teaches them about the truths in Christ. But you know, in today's age, the truth driven solution is pretty rare. So just try and place yourselves in their shoes. You know, you see your friends, maybe your good friends, walk away from the truth. Walk away from the church. You have in your minds their backs as they walked away. So you think relationships are severed. They're dividing. We are dividing over certain things. Now to some of us, when we come to the reality that John says, hey, you know those very things that caused that rift in your relationship, he says, you continue in them. The very things that divided the people, he says, you continue in them. Now to some of us, that's a strong statement. And it's hard to think that that is actually a loving thing to do. The gut instinct of many of us says, no, you know, they're leaving. What we need to do is Maybe take the issue and build it in such a way where we are drawn towards unity with one another. And in so doing, uh, redraw the boundaries that God has drawn for us. That's some of our gut instinct. To prize unity above all else. And that may have been some of their temptation. We do everything in their power to keep others from leaving. But of course this ends up in watering down truths to the lowest common denominator There is a God. Okay, let's go ahead and say that. And then maybe we say, everyone pursues his or her own spirituality, and it doesn't matter what they believe because it's all the same thing. If that is you, please know that God does prize unity, but never at the expense of his truth. God prizes unity, but never at the expense of his truth. In other words, so he loves the fact that there are three in one in the Trinity, he loves unity. But he doesn't bring in Satan to make it a quadrinity. Um, in other words, carte blanche unity is never ultimate to God. Carte blanche unity is never ultimate to God. Listen to what he says, right? If we read the New Testament, we, we come to understand this. Matthew ten thirty five. for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household because he knows that the gospel message is going to necessarily divide. And then we got the fact that Jesus actually divides the sheep from the goats. So Jesus himself doesn't ultimately uh, prize unity as the ultimate thing, but he does care about unity, doesn't he? It's exactly why he tells them to remain in the truth is because he's looking at the church His people that he bought that he saved through his blood because his blood is that powerful that once they are saved, they are saved. And he says, I want you to continue in what you have heard and already received. He cares about unity of the church and of his people. So what a reminder these Christians received. This is the hour. Watch out. You know him who is from the beginning. They proved though that they did not he says you know eternal life but they do not you know forgiveness of sins and fellowship with god they do not and so he concludes now remain in him so if you know yourself not to be a follower of jesus please know that christianity we do aim to love others and we do prize unity But where we experience unity, where you can experience unity with God is not by following your own desires of your heart, but by saying that God is the wisest, the most glorious, the most knowledgeable being there is, and I should therefore follow him. So Jesus says, if you repent of your sins and trust in him, you will, in fact, have that salvation that is promised to those who believe in the real Jesus and the real gospel. So when we repent of our sin, we are freed from condemnation. And 1 John says that when you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. That's how faithful God is. And he says, if you believe in me, the true God, you have this salvation. So the question is, have you repented and believed? And God calls you now to, in fact, repent and believe. So to conclude... John here just helpfully brings us to this way station, this inspection station. What is real Christianity? Real Christians persevere in fellowship with God, in fellowship with Jesus, his truth, and his church. Of course, this doesn't mean that we do not suffer from lapses of judgment or doubt or sin. We do. But then it's up to the church, the fellowship, to hold out the doctrine of truth, to say even at times when we are doubting The reality of Jesus Christ and his truth is up to the church to say, No, persevere in what you have learned and heard from the beginning and that which the anointing tells you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you that salvation is plain for all to see and that Jesus actually walked this earth. He died in space and time and he rose from the dead in space and time and he will come back in space and time. And so we do not need to go to someone who might claim special knowledge, but Lord, we can look very plainly at at what has happened in history and we can be confident knowing that if everyone turns and believes in Jesus the historical, real, living God-man that we can be saved and that all of us have the anointing if we believe. Father, we pray that you would make us a church who perseveres and that what would drive our perseverance is the reality that you are preserving us. That just as Jesus said that no one will snatch us out of his hand and no one will snatch us out of the Father's hand. We pray, Lord, that that would cause us to delight in remaining and persevering and have great confidence that your truth is what we ought to build our lives upon. Lord, make us a church that perseveres and may we trust in your preservation of us. We thank you for the powerful blood of Jesus and the fact that you actually save. In your name we pray, amen.